Chapter Twenty One of Mars Is My Destination by Frank Belknap Long. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Penn. Chapter Twenty One. You can be holding high cards, practically unbeatable, in the final deal of a poker game, and still not be sure of winning. You have to call your opponent's hand before he gets the idea that just by drawing out a gun and shooting you dead, he can gather up all the chips and cash them in by threatening further violence. Assuming, of course, that he's capable of that kind of violence and is in all respects the opposite of an honest gambler. You can be even less sure of winning when it isn't a game of cards you're on the point of winning, but a duel to the death with a ruthless power combine and time is running out on you. I had all the evidence I needed now to smash the Wendell Combine, but it had to be built up by legal experts and stripped down as well, until the documentation had the sinewy, block-busting expansiveness of a champion's punch. It would have to stir popular fury on Earth on a very wide scale be made so convincing that no one could possibly mistake it for a trumped-up shakedown in another grab for power. And that would take time, two or three weeks at least. And right at the moment, Wendell was almost certainly out of the hospital and back in the Wendell plant, getting ready to close in on the skyport with his army of goons. The problem that confronted me can be summarized in just one sentence. I had to get into my uniform, pin the silver bird into place, and complete just two visits, or Wendell would dig my grave wide and deep. Not just my own grave, of course. But when you fight to stay alive, you remember all of the things you want to protect and stay alive for. There are men, I suppose, who are chiefly concerned with survival on a more primitive plane but I think I can honestly say I've never been that kind of man. My first visit was going to be to one hell of a live man, Joseph Sherwood. Sherwood had undisputed custody, by authority of the board, of every nuclear weapon on the colony, with enough large-scale destructive potential to make open defiance of that authority an extremely risky undertaking. I was now his superior in rank, but I had no intention of making changes in his command or questioning the wisdom of the decisions he was more than qualified to make. The measures he had taken to protect the colony I regarded as absolutely correct, and he knew far more about nuclear armaments than I did. There were limits to what those measures could accomplish, because a large-scale thermonuclear weapon can destroy thousands of innocent victims, and the Wendell Combine knew precisely how far it could go without bringing down the thunder. All I had to do was convince Wendell that it had now gone too far, and that the thunder was very close. Basically, it would be quite a simple undertaking. I would simply have to walk into the Wendell plant and talk to him in a calm way, at the risk of being blown apart. I was standing before a full-length mirror in a small, windowless room, which the Skyport officials had assured me wasn't wired for sound. It sure had privacy. Not that I'd need it while I was putting on my uniform, because I'd be wearing it when I emerged, and they would all see the silver bird. And Joan was the only woman in the building, which made privacy a little absurd on more than one count. 
It was just that, well, when you stand before a mirror and pin that kind of insignia on a quite ordinary regulation-fit uniform, it does something to the wearer which changes the way he looks in a quite startling way. I guess I just didn't want anyone to see me observing the change in a mirror and grin, which would have forced me to do something I just didn't have time for, take a sock at him. I suppose there's a little garden-variety vanity in me. Show me a man who claims he hasn't a trace of it in his nature, and I'll show you a first-class liar. But right at the moment I wouldn't have been lying if I'd said that nothing could have been further from my mind than preening myself on the way I looked. But it was just as well I had privacy, because I had to stand before the mirror for three full minutes to get accustomed to the change and feel relaxed and casual about it. I had forgotten to tell Commander Littlefield I'd be needing a tractor, warmed up and ready to roll, and that the place to find it waiting for me would be right outside the gate. The one I'd left there, with a dead man sitting in it, didn't have quite the trim, speedy look of three or four I'd noticed standing about the skyport, and if he could get me a lighter one, so much the better. Joan was taking care of it for me. She came back just as I was turning from the mirror, with the silver bird gleaming on my right shoulder. She'd seen me wearing it before, of course, so she wasn't startled. But the tall, stoop-shouldered man with graying temples, who had followed her into the room, had enough startlement in his eyes to have made her a present of half of it, and still made the grade in that respect. He kept staring at the silver bird in tight-lipped silence, until I darted a questioning glance at Joan, and he seemed to realize he was putting a strain on my patience. "'My name's John Linton,' he said hesitantly. "'Commander Littlefield told me you'll be needin' a tractor. "'I have one, and I'll be glad to drive you, sir. "'I brought the Endicott fuel cylinder to the skyport, "'so I naturally feel pretty strongly about everything that's happened. "'There's just one thing I'd like to see happen to Wendell, "'but I guess I don't have to spell it out for you, sir.' "'I stared at him in amazement. "'I had taken it for granted that the colonist who had delivered the cylinder "'was no longer at the skyport.' because no one had pointed him out to me, and I'd been under too much of a strain to question Littlefield about it. Well, that takes care of one thing that puzzled me, I said. I couldn't understand why you'd just deliver the cylinder and clear out, but people here seem to feel their privilege to do pretty much as they please at times, so it didn't puzzle me too much. I was in the administration building, talking to a skyship officer, when you were in the shed, sir he explained. But I saw you come into the projection room. All right, I said. We haven't time to discuss it, and it's not important anyway. I know how to drive a tractor, but I'm not an expert at it. If you've got your own tractor, you'll know what to do if it breaks down. That's an advantage I'd be a fool to pass up. But if you're going with me, you may as well know we'll be in danger the instant we pass through the gate. The Wendell agents have orders to blast me down on sight. I shouldn't have said that, for it made Joan bite down hard on her underlip and say in a kind of talking-to-herself whisper, An armed escort would cut down the danger. Littlefield could... I shook my head. We'd be certain to be stopped then, 
and an open clash with Wendell agents in the streets of the colony would wrap it up, but good. There's no way of packaging it that would please Wendell more. The instant Linton realized, just from the way I was looking at Joan, that I wanted to be alone with her, he said, I better check over the tractor once more. I'll drive it through the gate, draw into the side of the clearway, and keep a sharp eye on the incoming traffic, if any. I'll keep the motor running, sir. The instant the door closed behind him, Joan was in my arms. For the most part, all we did was embrace without saying a word, which is one way of saying as much as you possibly can in the space of half a minute. I was a little afraid Joan would break down and burst into tears, which would have spoiled everything. I could see the tears trembling on the fringes of her eyelids, and decided right then and there that she was one hell of a precious woman. And when you're parting with something very precious, you can break your heart in two if you let yourself do too much thinking. So I just kissed her very firmly on the mouth for the tenth time, swung about and walked out of that small, windowless room without looking back to see if she was still doing her best to keep the tears from flowing. In the ambulance on the way to the hospital, I had seen more of the colony than I could have covered on foot in half a day. Jogging through the streets again, with Linton doing the driving, I could have taken in even more of it in a sightseeing way. I could have, but I didn't. I saw no reason to make myself conspicuous, and somehow, removing the insignia from my shoulders so soon after I had pinned it on, would have gone against the grain. And it wasn't just my uniform or the silver bird which would have made me a sitting duck to a window agent stationed anywhere along the way with my description dear and sharp in his mind. It was a safe bet we'd pass at least a dozen of the Combine's goons strutting about in their private police uniforms. So I took care to remain in a seated position on the back of the tractor, with my head well below sightseeing level. This time I didn't look, wonder, or black out at intervals. I kept a tight grip on my nerves, and refused to even let myself think what an impasse I'd be facing if my talk with arms custodian sherwood didn't bring the kind of results i was counting on it's hard to maintain just one rigid mental stance when you're keeping a great many hard-to-control emotions bottled up in your mind with a clamp-down safety valve but i didn't have to maintain the stance for long because twenty minutes after we left the skyport the tractor rumbled to a halt before a massive fortress-like building which stood a considerable distance from the buildings on both sides of it, and was protected in its isolation by steel walls, pacing guards, and a well-guarded stockpile of thermonuclear weapons. No Wendell agent would have risked blasting away at me within three miles of that stronghold, unless he was tired of living and didn't want to see another Martian sunrise. It made me feel secure enough to stand up and descend from the tractor without making a production out of it, as if I were two-thirds convinced I'd be blown apart before I could advance twenty feet. I neither hurried nor wasted time, just stood calmly by the tractor until I was satisfied no one who had seen us drive up, I was quite sure we were under long-range binocular scrutiny, would come striding out of the fortress to question us at gunpoint. Then I nodded to Linton and walked straight toward the big gray building. 
I told him not to move from his seat until I came out, so there was no need to caution him further. I can't remember at exactly what point in my approach to the high-walled gate the silver bird became a thunderbird, or exactly how each of the three guards looked when they first caught sight of it. I was too startled just by the way the oldest of the three, who must have been a tow-headed twelve-year-old when the first wearer of the insignia walked the streets of the colony, stared at me, snapped to attention, and grounded the heavy weapon he'd been holding slantwise across his chest with a thud. The other two guards quickly followed suit. Quite possibly they had merely taken their cue from him and didn't want to risk an official reprimand. But they certainly put on a convincing performance, as if what they feared most was a full-dress court-martial. If I dropped down out of the sky in a golden chariot and was Apollo, maybe, or the Aztec sun-god, I couldn't have been accorded more deference. A moment later the high steel gate opened and shut with a clang, and I was on the inside, with more guards on both sides of me. I'd paused a moment, of course, to explain to the elderly guard who had first saluted me just why I was there and whom I wanted to see. I had an escort of six guards as I walked to the end of the first-floor corridor and ascended a short flight of stairs, and they continued to escort all the way to the door of Sherwood's office. Some men can be jolted almost speechless by an unexpected visit and recover their composure so rapidly they seem to have retained it from the beginning. It was that way with Sherwood. He was a big man in his early forties, with close-cropped reddish hair and handsome features. He was sparing of words, but everything he told me was in direct answer to my questions, and a man who can confine himself to just giving you the information you need without wasting words is likely to be the kind of man you can depend on in an emergency. His final answer was the clincher. It came at the end of a fifteen-minute conversation. We can do it if we've no other choice, he said. All right, I said. I want you to tell Wendell exactly what you've just told me on a two-way televisual hookup. I'll be at the Wendell plant in fifteen minutes, and I'm sure I can persuade him to talk to you on the screen right after I've laid it on the line for him. If, I added, and it's a very big if, I can get in to see him without ending up dead. His goons have orders to blast me down on sight. He looked at me steadily for a moment, with a concerned tightening of his lips. Then he leaned back, and some of the strain left his face. Have any of the goons ever seen you with that insignia on your shoulder? he asked. It was a good question, and it confirmed the opinion I had formed of him. No, they haven't, I said but it doesn't alter the possibility I'll be blasted down before I can get in to see Wendell. Remember, the Wendell Combine has taken the big gamble and is waging an undeclared but all-out war. This insignia makes me target number one. If I took it off before entering the plant, his goons would probably recognize me anyway, too quickly for me to save myself by shouting at them and trying to make them see that Wendell would want them to withhold their fire. I may not have a chance to do any explaining, because they may recognize me just from the description that's been furnished them. 
Sherwood nodded. Yes, it would be foolish to deny you won't be exposing yourself to danger, and you'll have to be wearing the insignia when you confront Wendell. But I've a feeling Wendell's goons will take you straight to him. I could be mistaken, of course, but somehow I can't picture them firing point-blank at target number one without prior authorization. They'd be sticking out their necks with a vengeance, because their instructions to blast you on sight were issued before you pinned that bird on your shoulder. I hope you're right, I said. The goons are funny people. I'll be right here at my desk when the screen lights up, he said. Don't worry too much. I'll handle my end of it with very careful timing. Fifteen minutes later, my tractor rumbled to a halt for the second time, directly in front of the Wendell plant. Like the Endicott plant, it faced a big square, and there were no pedestrians in sight on the side we parked on. This time I'm going in with you, Linton said, very firmly. So he was going with me. All right, it was an obligation I owed him, and I couldn't pull rank on him because he was a civilian, and it wouldn't have done the least bit of good. Moreover, he'd gotten over being dazzled by the silver bird, if it had ever really dazzled him, which I doubted. He was a too tough-fibered, independent, non-authority-conscious kind of guy. You find them in every rugged, pioneering society. Guys who will stand up in a public meeting and tell a government big shot that the speech he's just delivered has a phony ring to it, and he'd be well advised to try again. I descended from the tractor a little more cautiously this time, keeping my eye on the ground floor windows of the plant and wondering how long it would take me to cross from the car to the building's wide main entrance, and if the steel mesh blinds on the windows might not be a cover-up for nuclear weapons pointed straight in our direction. But actually, despite the uneasiness which we both felt, we crossed from the tractor to the plant without hurrying, and with our shoulders held straight. There were two guards in Wendell Private Police uniforms, with nuclear handguns clamped to their hips, standing just inside the entrance, and the instant we came into view, their hands darted to the holstered weapons, and their eyes took on a steely glint. Then, both guards did a swift double-take. They didn't stiffen to attention the way the guards at the gate of the nuclear fortress had done, but something happened to their faces which made them seem to be wearing frozen masks. Only their eyes remained alive, alert, the steely glint replaced by a look of stunned incredulity. I spoke sharply, without giving them time to reach a decision on their own initiative, which might have had tragic consequences, for you can never tell what desperate, completely unjustified measure a badly jolted man will take it into his head to resort to. I'm here to see Wendell, I said. Nobody else will do. I guess I don't have to tell you that this is an order. You'd be very foolish not to unbar that gate, for I have the authority to take you into custody if you prevent me from entering the plant. You may be just guards, but that will not prevent the colonization board from imprisoning you on a treason charge. Their eyes never left the insignia while they were swinging open the big iron-barred entrance gate for me. It was set well back from the street, with enough walled-in space in front of it to accommodate a dozen bloody corpses. 
I had an idea they would have tried to make use of it in that way if I had attempted to force my way past them with an armed escort and hadn't been wearing the silver bird. The strain and uncertainty eased a little once we were fairly sure we wouldn't be blasted down without warning. It didn't take long for that near assurance to harden into a conviction, for what happened after the big gate clang shut behind us was almost a repeat of what had taken place in the nuclear fortress. More armed Wendell police guards fell into step on both sides of us, with much the same look on their faces the two at the entrance had worn ten seconds after their eyes had rested on the silver bird. Just one small incident took place that made it a little unlike the reception which had been accorded me when I'd asked to see Sherwood. We were held up at the end of a branching corridor while one of the guards went into a small blank wall room and buzzed Wendell on the inner plant communicator, announcing our arrival. We didn't know that until later, because he was careful to shut the door of the room before he spoke into the communicator. When he came out, there was a hardness around his eyes, a look of grim satisfaction that should have warned me that we were in danger. But you don't always attach as much weight as you should to a quick change of expression on the face of a man whose job requires him to resort to brutal violence two or three times a week. The face of such a man can harden just from habit. Because it was the kind of mistake it was easy to make, and the other guards were keeping their hostility under wraps, we didn't know or even suspect that we were walking straight into a trap until we were almost at the door of Wendell's office on the second floor of the plant. If you're the head of a big power combine, and shrewd, as Wendell unquestionably was, and there's a threat to your survival coming straight toward you along an echoing corridor, and you want to be sure in advance you'll be a broken man when you talk with him in strict privacy, with the chips scattered widely and the game almost at an end, you'll either take care of it yourself or assign just one man you can trust to do the job for you. Not a dozen men, or a half dozen, but just one. It's more efficient that way, more certain, the right way to go about it. I had no way of knowing that, of course, no way of looking through a wall at Wendell standing motionless or possibly seated in a chair, his eyes gleaming triumphantly as we approached the door of his office, with just one guard walking a few paces behind us. Except that, deep in my mind, the alarm bells were ringing again. They were ringing all right, but very, very faintly, and I don't know to this day what made me turn my head and look behind me, just as he was whipping out the heavy metal thong. I caught only the barest glimpse of the thong gleaming in the corridor light, but even if he had kept it concealed for a few seconds longer, his face would have given him away. His eyes were blazing with a savage enmity and he started for me the instant he realized I had been forewarned. I gripped Linton by the arm and fell back against the wall, tugging him around so that he was far enough behind me to give me a chance to grapple with hard eyes head-on, with complete freedom of movement. He made the mistake of coming at me too fast. It might not have been a mistake if he hadn't been so reckless with the thong, trying to lash me across the chest with it before he was sure of his balance. The sheer weight of the weapon carried him forward straight past me, and it went swishing through the air without hitting anything. I made a grab for his wrist, and before he could recover his balance, I was twisting it relentlessly and slamming my fist against the side of his head. 
He sank to his knees, and I kept right on hammering away at him, hitting him first on the right temple and then on the left, and not even stopping to take the thong away from him. There was no need for me to relieve him of the thong, for he flattened out on the floor, still holding on to it, and passed out cold. It seemed only reasonable and just to let him keep it as a souvenir. I was out of breath and feeling a little dizzy, because when you hit anyone as hard as I had hit hard eyes, not caring much whether I killed him or not, it takes a minute or two to recover. I still hadn't quite gotten my breath back when the door of Wendell's office slammed open and Wendell himself stood there, staring down at the guard with a look of consternation on his face. I became a little alarmed when I saw that Linton had moved out from the wall and was making straight for him with his arm drawn back. Hell! That's an understatement. I became very much alarmed, because the one thing I didn't want was to have Wendell belted unconscious and laid out on the floor at the guard's side before I could have a talk with him. I got between them just in time, and I grabbed Wendell by the shoulders and hurled him back into his office, and when he staggered a little and almost fell, I grabbed hold of him for the second time and slammed him down on the chair in front of his big metal top desk. He looked up at me for a moment with a killing rage in his eyes, but I didn't give him a chance to get his breath back. For the barest instant, though, if he had been quick enough, he might have succeeded in getting to his feet and lashing out at me, for I saw something on the opposite side of the room that seemed almost too good to be true, and I took three full seconds out to stare at it. It was a big telecommunicator screen, just the kind of screen I had been sure I'd find somewhere in the plant, but hardly in Wendell's private office. The fact that Sherwood had one in his office was not quite so surprising, for Sherwood's custodianship of thermonuclear weapons had made him more communication conscious. I'd counted on being able to persuade Wendell to accompany me to wherever the plant screen happened to be located after I'd had a serious talk with him. But since he hadn't wanted me to have a talk with him until he had done the best to get me killed or crippled for life, and I would now have to keep him boxed up in his office by force while we conducted the talk, having the screen so accessible was one hell of a lucky break. Shut the door, I told Linton, and lock it. I waited until Linton had complied. My hands on Wendell's shoulders was so fierce a clamp hold that he gave up trying to rise. You'll never get out of here alive, he choked. If you think... Don't press your luck, Wendell, I said warningly. I might be tempted to break your neck. That insignia you're wearing doesn't mean a thing now, Graham. Don't you understand? You couldn't command a fly to crawl over a breadcrumb. The Wendell Combine is taking over the colony. Not a fly, Wendell, I said. The Wendell Combine... A big boa constrictor has nothing in common with a fly, and I'm not interested in breadcrumbs. And this will surprise you. You're going to do the commanding. You're going to command the boa constrictor to start disgorging every kill it's ever swallowed. It's going to flatten itself out until it's just a mass of cold, mottled skin, which the board will know how to deal with. Who's going to make me? I am, I said. You have just ten minutes to make up your mind. You either turn over all the Combine's nuclear weapons to the board, 
break the back of the Wendell Police Force by arresting all its officers and placing yourself under house arrest and order every Wendell employee to cooperate with the board, or Joseph Sherwood will vaporize the plant with a thermonuclear bomb. The rocket will be guided by remote control and will hover directly over the plant until the bomb has been dropped. Only the plant will be destroyed. There will be no zone of spreading radioactive contamination. All the color drained from Wendell's face, leaving it ashen. You must be mad, he gasped. You'd die, too. I'm aware of that, I said. We'll all be vaporized together. But it isn't too bad a way to die, Wendell. You feel no pain. You never know. Do you expect me to take that threat seriously? He breathed. I'm afraid I do, I said. I gestured toward the telecommunicator. Sherwood will tell you how serious it is. He's waiting to talk to you. Suppose we turn that screen on and listen to what he has to say. I'm sure you know how to get the right wavelength. The Wendell spy network would hardly fail to keep you informed when Sherwood changes the code frequencies. You said ten minutes. Wendell was breathing harshly now, and the veins on his forehead were thick blue cords. You'd have to let Sherwood know when to drop the bomb. You haven't been in communication with him since you arrived here. Suppose I refuse to dial. That's a very intricate, highly specialized communicator. You couldn't operate it. That made me change my mind about letting him do the dialing. I was pretty sure I'd experienced no difficulty in getting in contact with Sherwood, and I didn't want to give Wendell a chance to make the communicator even more specialized by ripping out some of the wiring. I turned to Linton and indicated by tapping Wendell forcibly on the shoulder that I was about to relinquish my hold on the Combine's difficult president, and would he kindly take my place behind the chair. Don't let him move, I cautioned, when we changed places. Keep a tight grip on his shoulders. Don't worry, Linton said. If he moves an inch, I'll do what you said might not be a bad idea. Break his neck. It didn't take me long to discover that Wendell had lied about the communicator, which meant, of course, that he had been hoping I'd give him a chance to do a quick job of sabotage on the wiring. It was just a run-of-the-mill two-way televisual communicator with nothing special about it. There was a humming sound for a few seconds right after I'd finished dialing, and it gave me a chance to scrutinize Wendell's face to see how he was taking it. He was terrified, all right but his lips were still set in defiant lines, and I was sure that if he could have gotten a grip on my throat right at that moment, getting his fingers unlocked wouldn't have been easy. I thought that when Sherwood's image appeared on the screen, there would be just one minute of hard-to-live-through uncertainty, that he'd back up what I told Wendell with his hand on the rocket release button and look straight at me, as if awaiting a signal I had had no intention of giving but I suddenly realized I didn't know just how it was going to be. Would Wendell stay defiant right up to the end? Would he defeat me through sheer stubbornness, even though he was mortally terrified? But there was one thing I did know. For the first time, as I waited for Sherwood's image to appear on the screen, I knew with absolute certainty, beyond any possibility of doubt, that I could never go through with it. The rocket had to be prepared and ready. The nuclear deterrent had to be a reality, 
or I could never have carried the bluff through with the kind of confidence that just the knowledge that you're holding the highest cards in the deck can give you. I had to feel that I just might give the signal. But vaporizing the plant would have cost the lives of 30,000 people, and not more than a fourth of them were vicious criminals. I just couldn't see myself ordering a nuclear bomb to be dropped on more than 20,000 completely innocent Wendell plant engineers and laboratory technicians. Perhaps I shouldn't have felt that way, because if the Wendell Combine took over the colony, three or four times that number of innocent people would perish, or sink into degradation and become completely enslaved. But I did feel that way, and, well, I wouldn't have to live with what I'd done, because I'd be killed by the blast. But I didn't want that on my conscience, even as a dead man. I couldn't go through with it, but had I ever really intended to? It didn't mean I couldn't win, didn't change what I'd come to do. If I could carry my bluff through without flinching, right up to the zero-count instant, there was a very good chance that Wendell would crack. A very good chance still. I had the highest cards in the deck, and was only handicapped in one way. If the zero-count instant came and Wendell didn't crack, I couldn't play them. I've never really believed in miracles, but if you're holding what you think are the highest cards, and something happens to your hand you never dreamed could happen, if you look and see you've got a card that's even higher, just slipped in between the others as a gift, well, well that's pretty close to a miracle, isn't it? I thought when Sherwood's image appeared on the screen, he'd be sitting alone behind his desk, with his thumb on the rocket release button. But he wasn't alone, and when I saw who was with him, I almost stopped breathing. Joan was with him, and she was looking straight at me out of the screen. "'Don't do it, Ralph,' she pleaded. "'Oh, God, no!' Then I saw that she was staring past me, and without turning... I knew that she was appealing to Wendell with the same look of pleading desperation on her eyes. If he gives the signal, his command will be obeyed. And he'll do it unless you stop him. When you've lived with a man in the intimacy of marriage, yes, that's important, and I have to say it. You know him better than anyone else. You know what he's capable of. He'll give the signal unless you do as he says, because the insignia he's wearing gives him no choice. If you don't stop him now, you'll die with him. I turned then and stared straight at Wendell. I'd never seen a man sag before in quite the way he did. All of the life seemed to go out of his eyes. His defiance gave way to a look of utter hopelessness, of abject surrender. And he sank so low in his chair that he seemed on the verge of slumping to the floor, despite Linton's grip on his shoulders. His voice, when he spoke scarcely rose above a whisper. All right, Graham, he said. You win. As I turned back to the screen and saw the look of overwhelming relief and gratefulness in Joan's eyes, I couldn't help wondering how close she had been to being right. Had the insignia really given me any choice? If Wendell had stayed defiant and refused to crack, would I have gone through with it? How much does any man know about himself? I'd probably never know the answer. In the days that followed, every one of the Wendell agents were rounded up and returned to Earth to stand trial. 
I never did find out the identity of the agent who had shot the dart at me from high up on the spiral, or the one who had sent a little mechanical killer in my direction by the shores of Lake Michigan and New Chicago. It didn't worry me at all, because I was sure that both of those delightful characters were among the agents who had been rounded up in the mopping-up operations. Oh, yes. They rescued her with her hair in disarray and no longer standing high up on her head. Three days later, drifting through empty space about 300,000 miles from Mars. She's in prison now and will have to answer charges. But I intend to go all out in the plea I'll make in her defense when she comes up for trial. Some judges are enlightened and merciful and others are harsh tyrants. But with the backing of the board, I'm not too worried about the outcome. If it goes against us, I'll take it to the highest court in the land and the backing of the board carries plenty of weight there, too. Eventually, I forgave Commander Littlefield. I'm a hard man, Ralph, he said, standing in the starlight outside the port administration section with a crumpled sheet of paper in his hand. Right after he'd received assurances from Earth, he'd be placed in command of a new skyship. I did what I did because I am what I am. I knew that our life hung in the balance, that every word we exchanged increased the danger. But when I weighed that against the future of the colony, I felt I had no choice. I knew what a full confession would mean to us. I never saw Nurse Cherubim again. She married her doctor, and they were honeymoon passengers on the next scheduled Earth trip, which took place while I was busy making sure that the whole Wendell Combine would come apart at the seams. It was a little like watching a volcanic explosion and keeping the lava flow channeled with the full weight of the board's authority. Joan and I have become Martian colony residents for the duration. I mean by that there will always be new battles to be fought in a war that will never end, as long as man stays a part of the universe. There's something embattled about him that you don't find in any other species. Maybe it's good and maybe it's bad but it helps to explain why he keeps building for the future. He never knows, and just not knowing makes him want to build as sturdily as he can. You never prize anything so much as when you feel you're about to lose it, so you fight to preserve it, and when you've done that, you've built up enough excess energy to want to make a stab at something better, and when that's threatened, you'll fight again, and so on until the final curtain. It's just the way things are. The End End of Chapter 21 End of Mars is My Destination by Frank Belknap Long